Good morning. Uh, I want to take a moment and, along with John, welcome those of you who are our guests this morning. If you're here with us visiting, uh, congratulations on properly navigating the road signs for construction. Um, I kind of asked myself this week if that was going to be an impairment to our attendance, and uh, it might have been, but I'm, I'm glad that those of you who were willing to brave the very bold road closed sign uh, made it here this morning. And so um, earlier this week, you know, I've, I've kind of built up a relationship with the flaggers on our construction crew because they see me driving here every day. And so, you know, if there are times where I'm sitting there and we just have like a five or six minute conversation waiting for my ability to cross over the intersection. Uh, what I did not realize was that my flagger that is always on the west side of the intersection would not be the one to greet me on the other side of the road this week. And so when I pulled up thinking, oh, they're going to know that I'm allowed to, you know, cross over here and go to my place of, of work and, you know, arrive at the church building safely, um, I had to have a five-minute conversation about why it was important that I be able to arrive here midweek on a regular basis. And so uh, uh, it, it's been a little bit of a detriment. Thank you for bearing with, uh, with the process as it's ongoing. Um, just, just know that we only have a couple more weeks of uh, the intersection being closed, and we've actually been told, I believe, that most of the work is going to be done, believe it or not, for government work ahead of schedule. And so it was supposed to be 18 months. Uh, the high school has a little bit more ability to put some pressure on this than we do, and uh, apparently it will be done before school starts this year. And so this whole mess over here uh, should be done before August is over, and so we're looking forward to that. Um, all of that to say, uh, thank you for bearing with the, the busyness around the building. Um, which is not necessarily the business of the church, but it's, it's good business for our community. Um, this morning, we are talking about the cities of refuge. Uh, and, you know, as I was thinking about this passage, it is in many ways a strange little insert into the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I want to be clear. I think that this is not an insert in the sense that uh, someone came along and placed it here after the fact. I think it's a telling sign that Moses is kind of a preacher like me who has a sudden thought, oh, I should say this right now. I don't know if you've ever caught on to that, but I occasionally do that. Uh, what Moses does here is he's preparing to share the law with the people of Israel. He's getting ready to remind them of all the things that have already been commanded and things that are going to be specific to life in the land of Canaan. It's really important for us to recognize that a lot of the laws that Israel are given are unique to them because they are to be a nation that is different from all the nations around them. So when you think about the nations of the world and the way that they handle moral law, uh, it's, it's oftentimes not necessarily in line with God's moral law for the Israelites. In fact, if we were to take the moral law of the book of Deuteronomy and apply it to our culture, there are a lot of things that our culture would completely de disagree with mor uh, morally. But there are also other laws in the Old Testament that are just about ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, things like how you're supposed to handle mold that you find into your house. It's good advice, 
but it's not necessarily about morality. The ways in which you handle um, disease among your community, how do you make sure that it doesn't become a pandemic or, or an endemic or a, a spreading viral situation amongst a city or a town? There's a lot of wisdom in these chapters about the ways in which you handle things as they arise in your community, and they all have to do with keeping the Israelite people clean. So you have these two types of laws, and then there's a third type of law, and some would say that the, the cleanliness laws and these laws are deeply interlinked. They, they are the laws that apply specifically to the practice of the Hebrew faith. They are things about sacrifices, the ways in which the Levites are uh, expected to behave and keep themselves even separate from other Israelite people in many ways. And so you have these kind of staggered laws with different purposes and intents, but the moral law in general, we would look at and say all of that more or less still applies to us today. You know, it's probably a good thing that we're told not to commit adultery, not to murder, not to steal, not to lie, not to covet. Those are all good things. And much of the law takes those laws and fleshes them out in some way. Because we might say, well, what does it mean not to murder? Well, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that in the broader law. A lot of discussion about what classifies as murder and what doesn't classify as murder. There are laws in there about what you might do to a murderer who has caused harm to someone that is a member of your family. But there's also, at the very beginning of the law, this little moment where Moses, before even introducing specific laws to the people, stops and says, let me tell you about the cities of refuge. Before we start the law... Let me tell you about the cities of refuge. And we, we stop and we think, well, what does this have to do with the rest of the law? Now, we, we recognize it seems like it's part of the law, but it comes before Moses expands on the law, or expounds, I should say, on the law, and begins to explain it to the people so that they might practice the law well in their land. I give you all of this background information because I think it's important for us to recognize that Moses starts his sharing of the law with something that we might call an exception to the law. But it's an exception by building another rule. In order to explain that, I need to talk to you about my favorite sport. Uh, some of you have probably come to the realization that I, I try to limit myself to about once a year where I talk about baseball from up here because not everybody loves baseball as much as I do. But I want to explain to you the three most misunderstood rules in baseball and the heart behind them so that then we might explain what the cities of refuge are and why they are important. Uh, and, and you're going to have to bear with me for just a little bit because you're thinking baseball and cities of refuge don't sound like they have a whole lot to do with each other. They do, and I'll explain why. Uh, so we're talking about these, these rules of baseball, the three rules no one understands. And I've come to this realization that no one understands them because I have been both a, uh, well, a coach, an umpire, and a parent for little league sports. 
Uh, I have read the umpire rulebook backward to forward and, and forward to backward, and, and I've made sure that I've memorized as many of the rules and statutes as I'm supposed to have. You might call me the Pharisee of baseball, okay? Uh, I know how it's supposed to be applied within my interpretation as the umpire. I know how it's supposed to be applied by my interpretation as the coach, which doesn't always apply uh, to my interpretation as the umpire. And I'll tell you what, as a parent, both of those guys are wrong, you know? Uh, anytime that my kid gets up to play, the umpire is always wrong. And the coach, you know, hey, how could you possibly get this? Well, not my coach, but the other guy's coach, right? It's important to know that just like the Old Testament law, there are differing interpretations of what they mean. But I'll tell you this, for the most part, in baseball, the only interpretation that matters is the umpire's. If a coach argues with the umpire, what happens to him? Ejected from the game. I have only on a couple of occasions ever had to eject someone from the game for disagreeing with a call that I made, and then I never had to make that, that call again because I built up a reputation as someone who is willing to eject a coach from the game for arguing about my ruling on a particular play. Um, it's, it's absolutely essential to understand that the umpire has the final word. Now, if you watch MLB, you'll see that occasionally they'll make a call to New York City and someone there will you know, review a play in slow motion and they'll like still frame shot all the way through the play to see if the runner beat the, the catch. Or, you know, it's, it's a whole process. They're appealing to a higher authority, though, that has a better perspective or more perspective. And so they've, they've kind of allowed for the higher authority to make the ruling, right? But generally speaking, on the field, in most of baseball, the higher authority is the umpire. There are a lot of times that a runner knows that he's out. But if the umpire says he's safe, he's safe. There are a lot of times that a, a baseman knows that they've made the tag, but if the umpire says that they didn't make the tag, they didn't make the tag. And it's frustrating, and you find yourself really upset, and you think, how in the world could someone with such poor judgment be the one to make the calls? Well, his perspective is different from your own. And it applies even more as a parent sitting in the stands. If you sit there and you, you watch the game as the pitch comes over the, the plate, or not so much over the plate, your perspective may make you think it came over the plate, but it didn't come over the plate. It was two inches off on the outside. But the umpire is right behind the plate. He sees how high the ball is, how low the ball is, how far inside or outside the ball is. He sees if there's a curve on it. He sees if it drops and it's deceptive to the people who are watching the game. The perspective of the umpire is what matters. It's also why we want to have more than one umpire on the field if we can, because the guy behind the plate really can't always see what's happening on second. So in professional baseball, you have multiple umpires on the field with multiple perspectives, but it always comes back to the other umpire to make the final call. If someone appeals the final call, the other umpire who has the better perspective has the opportunity to adjust the call. You kind of get like a trinity of umpires out there, but we're not going to try and analogize the trinity this morning. That would be dangerous. Rules in baseball that nobody understands. Drop third strike. Raise your hand if you fully and completely understand the drop third strike. 
All right, there we go. I, uh, people that I kind of figured would know these things. We've got uh, Troy and Don, okay, fellow baseball lovers here. The drop third strike, all right? So what happens when a, a, a batter gets three strikes? They're out, okay. They are out of the game, they go sit back in the dugout and they wait for their next turn at bat or, you know, until they get out on the field to play. That's the rule. That's, that's how baseball is played. Most people know. Four balls, you get a walk. Three strikes, you're out. If you hit a foul ball on the second strike, you're not out because the ball goes somewhere wild, right? Uh, and, and so you get another chance to stay alive and hit the ball again. Most people know those are the rules of baseball. But occasionally, the umpire calls strike and the batter runs to first. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on? Did he not hear that he just got struck out? And he hits first base, and everyone in the stands is like, what's going on? Why is this happening? And the first baseman, who's probably like 10 years old, is thinking, why is this guy now standing on my base? I watched him strike out. And meanwhile, the catcher is back here looking for the ball that is probably directly under him, outside of his vision, because of the padding on his chin. Because he dropped the ball. It was a strike across the plate, but the catcher didn't make the catch. And so what the runner gets to do, if there is no one on first, is try to steal first. Now we all know what stealing in baseball looks like, right? You, you see your opening and you run from first to second when no one has hit the ball. When the catcher is, is, you know, doing a bad job of catching the ball himself or the pitcher has done a bad job of throwing the ball over the plate and it goes past the, uh, the catcher or the pitcher is just in his own head and you've decided, you know what, he's taking his own sweet time, I'm going to take second, he's not even going to know I did it. That's called a steal. For years and years and years in baseball, there was no such thing as stealing first. You got a third strike and you were out or you got walked and that was how it was going to happen. Or maybe, fortunately, you managed to make contact with a 99 mile per hour fastball and you got to run to first because you got a hit. But it came to people's realizations that there were a couple problems with this. You could have the laziest catcher in the world if there was no one on first, second, or third to worry about. They could just let every ball go past. The catcher could kind of take a break, and if your pitcher was good enough, he could just throw smoke down the middle of the lane over and over and over again and strike out batter after batter after batter, and the game gets really boring and there's no excitement, and now we can't sell tickets, which means we can't sell peanuts, which means we can't sell beer, which is the real moneymaker at most stadiums, and as a result, the whole sport will fall apart. We need to make baseball more exciting, but we also need to make sure that the players don't stop playing because the point of baseball is that players play the game. And so to keep the players engaged... And to keep the fans engaged because the players were engaged, they created an opportunity for the, base, uh, for the batter to become a baseman even if he struck out, which kept the catcher accountable for getting a hold of the ball, right? Now in the MLB, you don't see a lot of drop third strikes. It just does not happen on a regular basis because these guys know it is foolishness to give up that third strike so that now it becomes a base runner doesn't get counted as an out. And now you are behind because your pitcher has done a lot of work to get that guy out, and now you've got a base runner. So the catcher does what's right by the pitcher, 
and by the rest of the team and catches the ball. It sounds so simple. Of course he catches the ball. He's the catcher. It's far more difficult than that. All right, that's number one. Number two, you all got to bear with me for just a little bit as we walk through this. The infield fly rule. Raise your hand if you completely understand the infield fly rule. Anyone who raised their hand is kind of lying to you because the infield fly rule is the most deceptive of all rules in baseball because there are times in which it applies and times in which it doesn't apply, and then the next time, those same times, it will or will not apply in the inverse, okay? So this is what we call a judgment rule in baseball. You have no runner on, a, rather, you have a runner here on first, you have a runner here on second. I don't know if those are staying up there. Do you get to see the little blue things? Okay, don't worry about it. We're, I was trying to get too fancy this morning. You have a runner on first or second, uh, runner on first, definitely a runner on first. You could have a runner on second, right? Uh, if you have a runner on first or second and a fly ball is hit, what's supposed to happen? You tag up, you wait on your base, you do not run. Because if they catch the ball, the batter is, and if you are not on your base and didn't tag up, then they can get a force out on your base, right? Double play, great, fantastic. And if you got a runner on second and a runner on third, and neither of them tagged up, and the, the you know, ball is caught, and then they throw it to second, and then they throw it to first, as a result, you get a, a triple play and you get to sit them down in one hit, right? That's a pretty exciting moment in baseball. You know what's not so exciting? When you got a runner on first, and you got a runner on second, and you got a batter who hits a fly ball, and the, the first baseman is standing there knowing full well that he can catch it, he drops his glove and lets it fall on the ground. Now, why in the world would he do that? Can you imagine why he might do that? Okay, you guys know, You're, you understand this. He picks up the ball, steps on the base, gets the runner out, throws it to second, gets the first base runner out, throws, they throw it to third, and they get the second base runner out, and now it's a triple play, and he didn't do what he was supposed to do, which is catch the ball in the air, right? That's the spirit of baseball. To get a fly ball uh, batter out, you need to catch the ball. He could have reasonably done it, but chose not to, so that he could cheat the game and get three outs when he really probably was only going to get one. All right? That's, that's the whole point of the infield fly rule. Clear as mud, right? But it's also up to the discretion of the umpire as to whether or not that first baseman could catch the ball under reasonable circumstances. So let's say you got the warning track, this, this dirty spot right here, or not the warning track, but the, the meeting of the infield and outfield, right? And you, you have that ball drop down behind the first baseman. Could the first baseman catch that? Well, maybe. You know, maybe if he was playing deep in the infield, he could have caught it. And if he was, then the umpire might say, infield fly rule. And if he says it, and it's not caught, then that baseman has just gotten out. Listen to that again. If he calls the infield fly rule and the ball is not caught, that infielder just got an out. Why? I'll tell you why. In the event that the runner is not out, first base has to move, right? Second base 
has to move in order to make room for that runner who is coming up behind. And so they encountered this situation where the first baseman would stick his glove up, let the ball fall in front of him, and then do the triple play we just discussed. And as a result, he's cheating the system to get the outs. But if it's called infield fly, nobody has to move forward when that ball is dropped on the ground. First base, who has done their job and tagged up. Second base runner, who has done their job and tagged up. They don't have to worry about being out because the first baseman cheated the system. They get to stay on their base, and the batter is out. Now, if you only need one out, that's great. That's wonderful. Wonderful thing for you, right? Most umpires don't call infield fly rule on the third out. It just doesn't happen. But that's in order to make sure that people don't cheat the system, that the game is played the way it's intended to be played. Now, there's one last rule that I want to talk about. The previous two rules are, in many ways, rules that require a little bit of judgment. But this third rule, it is entirely judgment. It varies so much from one person to the next that even a trained, seasoned, stand-sitting rule follower, Pharisee among Pharisees, who has, has watched every game that they possibly could, has played the role of umpire, has been a coach, can watch the game and be like, hold on, wait, what do you mean? It is called the bulk. So you have a pitcher that's standing on the mound. Right? And he's fiddling with the ball here, and he puts his ball in his glove, and he brings his feet together. Bulk! Why? Because the pitcher raised his shoulders. He breathed a little too deeply, and he raised his shoulders. And that is a bulk, because it could have potentially signaled to the batter that he was beginning, beginning his wind-up, and he didn't throw the ball, and now he's caused undue stress to the batter and to the umpire and to everyone else that's involved in deciding if that ball's going to come down the plate, and how dare he do this thing? Let me show you again. Fiddling with the ball. Brings it to the glove. Puts his feet together. Bulk. Now, one umpire might call it a bulk. The next umpire won't call it a bulk. All right? I want to be completely clear with you that two different umpires witnessing the same motion from the same pitcher will handle it entirely differently from one another. All right. Same pitcher. He's standing at the, the mound, and he's looking over to first base, and he turns his foot out like this, and then he throws the ball to the plate. That's a bulk. That's a really clear and easy call because his motion didn't suggest that he was going to pitch. It suggested that he was going to throw it to first, right? Same pitcher. He's now standing here, and he steps and throws to third. That's a bulk because his motion suggested he was going to throw it to home plate, but he threw it to third instead, which ends up throwing the batter off. And all of these are bad ideas as a pitcher because you're throwing off your mechanics as a pitcher, but most importantly, most importantly, it breaks the flow of the game, and it messes up the umpire. Because you have now become difficult as a pitcher for the umpire to read. 
You have made the game more difficult for the person who is to make sure that the game continues the way it's supposed to be. Your intentions have been made unclear, and you are now untrustworthy as a pitcher. Now, when your kids are this old and they're learning to pitch for the first time, no umpire calls a bulk more than like once a season, okay? And then they call the pitcher down and they're like, hey, buddy, let me tell you why that was a bulk. And they explain the whole thing and the kid walks away like, I still don't know what I did wrong, right? When you get to about this age, they start really calling it on you because they want to train you in your mechanics to make sure that you are doing the right thing, that when you get up, you don't have a bulk called on you because you side real heavy after you brought the glove and ball together and put your feet in your ready position and went breathe before you put the ball in the glove. This is very much a judgment rule. But I want to be clear with you this morning. As someone who is occasionally frustrated by these rules and the interpretation of these rules, other people's understanding of these rules, other people's implementation of these rules, I'm glad these rules exist because I love baseball. I think it is, and, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this about myself, I think it is the greatest sport ever invented. Some of that is probably because I like, uh, I like, I like rules and I like the rules to make sense and be followed regularly. Every one of these rules makes baseball the game that baseball is supposed to be. It encourages players to remain involved in the game. It encourages the, uh, the effort that is required to play the game appropriately. It prevents people from cheating the system by not playing appropriately to break the game and get more outs in ways that they're not supposed to. And most importantly, as an umpire, it makes it easier for me to judge what's going on. Now, I want to I come back to our lesson this morning, to our specific passage of Scripture that we're dealing with. Moses tells the people, you're about to go into the land. Now, some of you are remaining on this side of the river because God has given you cities on this side of the river. In the cities that God has given to you, I want you to obey his statutes. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today with you, uh, that, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan that the manslayer might flee there. The manslayer. In our minds, immediately, we jump to murder. Someone who has killed another person. But sometimes, by a matter of accident, you don't kill someone, but a person is killed. Sometimes, by a matter of, of simply living out the course of your life, something bad happens and through your actions, but no real fault of your own, a person dies. Under the harshest and strictest sense of the law, you are to be stoned. 
You are to be executed. At, at best, if it was just a servant in someone's household, you might actually have to, you know, like pay them the, the value of that servant, which to us doesn't sound like the best. But according to the law, there are strict demands for anyone who has in any way caused the death of another person. And so you might accidentally kill somebody. And their family can exact revenge on you. They can drag you out of the town and stone you to death. And Moses recognizes that this is, this is maybe a flaw in the system. There are actually several times that Moses recognizes that there is something here that doesn't serve the justice of God. In one case, it's a bunch of uh, sisters who say, you know, we don't have a brother. If our father should die, only the first male child is supposed to receive an inheritance, or the male children will split the inheritance, and as a result, we will be left destitute because we don't have an inheritance in our father. And Moses says, you know what? That's not right. So what we're going to do is we're going to allow you to have an inheritance as well, and then when you marry or you have children, your children or your husband will receive the inheritance to continue the possession of that piece of land under the law in an appropriate way. But we're not going to let the fact that you don't have brothers break the system. So let's say that Michael accidentally kills somebody. Sorry, Michael, you get to be the example because you're sitting up here in a purple shirt and so you stand out. Michael accidentally kills somebody. Under the law... John, whose uh, best friend was just killed, gets to drag him out of the city and stone him to death. And John is pretty angry about this, so he's going to do it. Right? Okay, now you get to witness it here. (laughs) And as they flee, as Michael runs, Michael knows that on his side of the river, there are three cities of refuge. Because Moses doesn't just tell them three cities on this side of the river. Later he'll tell them, here are the three cities on the other side of the river. I think it's three cities. We'll get back to that later. Michael knows where those cities are. And if he can get to one of those cities, he can appeal his case and have it heard so that John doesn't get to exact vengeance on him. And it's going to be about the intent and purpose of Michael's actions. Was he negligent? Did he maybe do this as a crime of passion? Was it premeditated? In what ways did he plan and think through what he's about to do or what has occurred? The law was not designed to punish people for things they had never intended to do. It was not a gotcha system. It was not designed so that if you told someone the wrong thing but then later found out that the wrong thing is what you told them because you didn't know at the time, that we count that as a lie. Now, are you required to go and try and rectify the misunderstanding? Absolutely. But you are not a liar because you spoke without knowledge. You are not a murderer because through the course of your regular daily life you accidentally killed somebody. You tied a knot wrong, and a load of bricks crumbled to the ground and destroyed someone's existence. Now, you might have to pay reparations to the family for your negligence, 
but you're not a murderer. Moses recognizes that this is something that could potentially happen, and I want to be really clear here. Moses knows personally what it's like to have killed someone in a fit of of rage. Not premeditated, but kind of accidental. Moses fled Egypt because he was a killer. And so Moses begins the law with an explanation about a way in which grace might be applied to what seems like a pretty clear-cut rule. Hear that again. Moses offers a command. He offers a gracious reprieve from something that could be misinterpreted and not in keeping with the spirit of the law before he offers the law to the people. The recounting of the law to the people of Israel begins with a gracious opportunity for someone to appeal their case. We sometimes look at the law and we say, I cannot believe the rigor that you would have to have in your life to keep all of these commands. What happens if you accidentally mess up and you do the wrong thing? Well, I think Moses begins by saying, look, there are going to be times where someone by, by just living their life, has broken the law in some way, shape, or form. And we need to be gracious in ways that allow them to appeal their case. Ways that allow them to restore themselves to good standing with society. Ways that allow them to continue their relationship with God. We oftentimes see the law as ingracious and cold and hard and difficult and unfair. But Moses begins with a rule about the bulk. It's going to require some interpretation. It's going to really mean that we have to take a look at what this person was doing and the ways in which they were doing it and ask ourselves, did they intend to throw the batter off? Are they untrustworthy? Was this an incident where he just breathed heavy? The law has a spirit to it and an intent and a purpose and a desire to serve the people of Israel, not to make them burdensome or overburdened, I should say, but to allow them to know the grace of God even in situations where they have failed. We have to understand that the cities of refuge, as strange and obscure as they might seem to us, are a statement of grace. That the God of the Old Testament, as we sometimes refer to him, is the same gracious God as the God of the New Testament. Grace is not something that suddenly only appears in Jesus. It is a characteristic that God has always had. It is a characteristic he has always attempted to extend to his people. When we see this in Deuteronomy... We have to ask ourselves, and I'm, I'm landing the plane now. We have to ask ourselves, are we as gracious with the people who have wronged us as Moses asked the people of Israel to be to those who had accidentally killed a man? I think there are times where people have wronged us inadvertently, and we hold a deep, bitter grudge over it. 
Maybe they've even wronged us intentionally. And we lack the grace to forgive them when they ask. We like to hold on to the rules and say, you know what? You hurt me. You broke the rules. Our relationship is over. Moses begins the law by saying, you know how God views you? Yes, he's got a lot of expectations for the way you will live, for the moral truth that you are supposed to follow. But he is willing to create opportunities for grace, for you to appeal your case, for you to be heard, and for you to be restored. Isn't that what the gospel is all about? The opportunity for restoration? The opportunity for new creation? The opportunity to be restored, not just to relationship with God, but with all those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we sometimes encounter things in the law that we don't quite understand. But I think you've placed many of these things here as a sign to us of your gracious nature, of your love and your devotion to your people. And I pray, Father, this morning that we would understand that, that you have always built in opportunities for grace and restoration to the laws and decrees that you have given to your people. Father, I pray that we would recognize that especially as those who live life in Christ, who live by the Spirit, that we would be gracious and loving towards one another, that we would be willing to extend grace even in circumstances that are very difficult to us, for us naturally to find resolution to. So Father, this morning, for those of us who have been blessed never to have to forgive someone for the death of a friend, a loved one, we thank you for those of us who have struggled to forgive people for having wronged us. We pray that you give us greater grace. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you have need of the church, if there are ways that we can bless you, pray for you, walk alongside you, uh, there are elders here this morning that would be happy to visit with you at the back of the auditorium, and some of our ladies would as well. Um, if you have any need, we'd ask that you, uh, you join them at the back of the auditorium as we stand and sing.